Hello, guys. Welcome back. It's been a while. Uh, we're back on a once-per-month schedule to accommodate for our editor, and both Margaret and I are living pretty busy lives. So we are going to see you once per month. And uh, in the meantime, definitely continue to follow our content here and follow Black Agenda Report, subscribe, donate, uh, hit the like button, reshare, uh, tweet this out, uh, do whatever you can to make sure that Black Agenda Report's message gets out. So today we're going to just begin and talk about the human rights industrial complex. This mm -hmm. uh, seems to be something that both parties ascribe to. There is a prevailing narrative in the United States, an imperialist narrative that says that the United States has the right to say, to accuse and to make up false claims oftentimes or to exaggerate uh, certain aspects of countries that the State Department generally wants to overthrow, wants to institute regime change, or just wants that government to be more compliant. So we've seen this so often. We see it now with the Trump administration's uh, constant warmongering and this new Cold War that his administration is waging against China. We haven't heard any criticisms of Donald Trump around his bellicosity towards China. And then you have just it seems like every other week, Joe Biden comes out and attacks Donald Trump from the right, saying that, oh, he talks tough on Venezuela, but actually worships their dictator or the same thing in Nicaragua. Uh, this has happened with Syria, all of this tough talk. Uh, back and forth between Biden and Trump, and usually it centers around the fact that these countries have leaders and have governments that the United States doesn't like, and then they are accused of so-called human rights violations. But regardless of the truth uh, behind these claims, usually they're just outright lies. Uh, we know that, for example, China has a prison population of around 1 million, but yet they have 2 million secret prison uh, uh Uyghur prisoners that uh cannot be verified unless from some very uh high up satellite uh, through think tanks that are doing so-called research like the Australian Strategic Policy Institute which is funded literally by Raytheon and Lockheed Martin and Boeing while the United States as you said in an interview on the point Margaret on CGTN you were talking about how the United States has actually 2 million prisoners that you can document Mm -hmm. Very easily here, but yet so-called journalists, the corporate media, Democrats, Republicans, they don't talk about the situation regarding mass incarceration. And we can go down on and on and on. Actually, China publishes almost an annual report on U.S. human rights violations because how, why should the U.S. have some sort of monopoly over this narrative of human rights. And so, yeah, we should just start here because I think it's such an important mechanism of war that the United States uses. And they never talk about Israel's human rights violations against Palestinians, Saudi Arabia's human rights violations, uh, damn near everybody in the region, as well as its own people. They never talk about those instances, but when it comes to Venezuela, Syria, China, Russia, we can go on and on and on, Venezuela, Cuba, uh, it's the human rights violations are the big issue, and that's why right. their governments the deserve punishment. Yeah, but it's it's war propaganda. Um, they know that uh, most people, I mean, to their credit, don't <clears throat> excuse me want their country doing uh, business with uh, countries that are violating human rights. They want buy-in, 
for when they attack a country, either uh, literally, as in the case of Iraq or Libya, or use proxies, as in Syria, or a hybrid war, as in uh, China, or the attempt to overthrow in, in Venezuela. They know they'll get buy-in, they'll get less opposition if they paint the targeted nation as a villain. And uh, that's something we must always keep in mind. Um, and you're right about Biden. His only foreign policy attacks on Trump are from the right. Uh, it's, you know, uh, a bad um, uh, electoral strategy. They want to win Florida, where there are many uh, Cubans who call themselves exiles, who are very right wing, not only about Cuba, but about um, uh, any left wing government in Latin America. Lots of Venezuelans now who uh, who left because they didn't like Chavez or Maduro. So part of it is an attempt to win Florida, which is ridiculous because uh, we're talking about people who are always been Republicans. They're not going to vote for Biden anyway. And of course, instead of uh, talking about those things that would actually bring out new voters, they don't. The Democrats don't want to do that. So they would rather uh, try to thread this needle and think they can, you know, uh, slice off some Cuban voters away from Trump, which is ridiculous. But um, it's a the duopoly is the duopoly are imperialist and uh, there, there's no difference. So when Biden and other Democrats talk about Venezuela, it's only to criticize Trump because he didn't overthrow the government, not about the U.S. causing great suffering there or in any of the targeted nations. Iran, Syria is um, the U.S. failed uh, militarily in Syria. So they have chosen to steal Syria's resources, steal its oil. Um, uh, increased sanctions, life, they're making life miserable for people in Syria. So, uh, but that is of no concern to Democrats who see the world the same uh, way. And as for China, uh, you mentioned that uh, uh, the Uyghurs, it's, um, uh, it's, it's very funny. You, as you said, I was on CGTN yesterday and there was a, another guest who was talking about uh, Uyghurs in prison, and first I heard there was a million, then it was two million. This guy was like, there's three million Uyghurs. And you're absolutely right. The actual evidence of this is very skimpy, comes from a handful of dodgy sources. Uh, and then you find when people really look at it, they'll, they always show a satellite image of a big building or a complex, and they'll say, that's a Uyghur prison camp. And in one instance, someone actually proved it was an apartment complex. So um, uh, nothing that uh, the, uh, our government says about China can be trusted. We even had, and this is, it's getting more and more ridiculous, uh, a Republican has proposed legislation calling it the Name the Enemy Act, which would require all federal documents to refer to Xi Jinping as chairman of the Chinese Communist Party. He could not be called the president of China or be given any other title in any federal document, he would have to be called General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, something to that effect. I mean, now we're in Freedom Fries. I don't know if you remember Freedom Fries. I do remember that. I do remember that. I was young. I remember that. Invasion. And, um, you know, France had the nerve to not go along. So uh, they were slandered and smeared. And there was actually a law saying that in Congress, French fries served in the cafeteria had to be called Freedom Fries because the word French couldn't be used. So that we're there again, we're back there again. 
And um, but the notion of um, human rights violation in this country is rarely brought up. Um, even when people talk about mass incarceration, they don't speak of it as a human rights violation that there are more than 2 million people in prison, mostly for drug offenses, not for committing violent crimes. Uh, half of those people are black. Uh, most people are in prison, don't even go to trial. They don't, um, uh, it's really a very corrupt system whereby people are rightly afraid to go to trial. They're offered some plea bargain. If you plead guilty, you get two years instead of five years. And it's this calculus, which actually makes sense to accept a guilty plea. And uh, um, this is something that continues. Um, we have actual profit in our prison system. They talk about slave labor in China. Well, we have that here. Um, prisoners in this country work for pennies. In some states, they don't get paid at all. Uh, they make clothes, they make furniture. Uh, if there, sh there should be a Truth in Prison Act, and anything made by incarcerated people should be labeled as such. It should say made in prison, so that people realize the depth of the incarceration system here. That's tied to police brutality. The police on the beat are, they're at the bottom rung of this system. They snatch up as many people as possible uh, for minor offenses. They're cozy with the prosecutors. Once you're arrested, you're, the, odds are, um, the odds are against anyone who enters this system. So yeah. uh, that's where we are with uh, human. And I, as you said something else about China. You know, one of the things um, Trump goes on about is COVID-19. Uh, yeah. The Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus. And China responded very quickly. There was some stumble early on. I don't know that it was malice. It was a new disease. But within about five weeks of first learning about these cases of this mysterious illness in Wuhan, they identified the virus, they sequenced the genome, they gave it to the world and said, here you go. You can test for it. Do your thing. And mm -hmm. uh, the United States messed up the test and we don't have a real public health system in uh, Trump was trying to hide it, and the end result is 200,000 deaths, yeah. only 5,000 in China. So how do we talk about human rights when you have this, we're always told America's a rich country. Well, I don't, we need to stop saying that. There may be a lot of money in the treasury. There may be some very wealthy people, but this, this wealth has nothing to do with the well-being of the people. No. So, um, and we have a for-profit healthcare system. So we have, um, COVID is just the latest example of preventable deaths because of this awful system that we have. People thrown out of work by COVID. Um, Congress giving uh, meager amounts of money. Now they're, you know, at an impasse. They're all trying to play political chicken before election day. And the extra unemployment uh, people got has been gone. That was uh, that disappeared about a month ago. So um, mm -hmm. that is how we should see human rights. We do have torture in American. Oh prison. yes, we do. Yes, we have police killing people, a thousand people a year on average. So if you really want to be serious about human rights, the United States does not measure up very well at all. No, no, it indeed does not. And 
uh, everything you said is so important. Uh, I, I mean, the principal reason, and we just have to say, I think too many, even on the anti-war left, and I know that uh, David Swanson has a great book about uh, World War II and leaving it behind. I know he was very interested in that topic when he was talking about my book with me and in his review. And, it, you know, since that period, since the World War II period, uh, the United States, because it, it has been the global hegemon and has used World War II as the kind of pinnacle of its representation as the most democratic society mm -hmm. that's ever been born, we've had a situation where every time the United States wants to assert its hegemony, it uses these anti-communist tropes often uh, that are leftovers of the Cold War that continue to into this day. Some people want to say the Cold War was pre-1991. It still <laughs> lives in terms of the ideology that much of the ruling class uses to demonize countries. And then in terms of policies and in terms of how the United States conducts war and uh, as an empire, it generally uses the most heinous and criminal lies and distortions and pro outright propaganda to destroy countries that honestly, in reality, are just successful countries that are successful, that are successfully building their own economies, their own societies based on the ways in which uh, they have determined as a society to move. And uh, that's what I think more people need to do is to expose that aspect of it, because it's one thing to say, OK, we oppose war because war is has no there's no there's nothing beneficial uh, for so many working people about war, right? Nothing, there's nothing they're going to gain from it. The, the austerity is going to be even more rampant, and uh, ultimately it's just trillions wasted on, on murdering and overthrowing and destroying other countries. But then the why is very important. And when you look at countries like China, which is on the rise, which has a very strong economy, right? All this, these questions about so-called slave labor, why do wages rise in China? So uh, every single year by on an average 10% per year, that means that the entire society is moving up. When you see the United States, wages have been stagnant since the 1970s. Either they've mm -hmm. declined or they've remained stagnant. There has not been a raise for workers here in this country for so long, for two and a half, three generations. And so, uh, you know, that's just one example. Then there's, uh, you know, Venezuela. Venezuela provides health care for its people. Venezuela has a more democratic political process than the United States. Venezuela has socialized institutions which mm -hmm. allow, even under sanctions, for people to have a better life than they had pre-1990s before Hugo Chavez was um, elected in that country, they were extremely poor. I mean, to this day, Venezuela remains a poor country, but extreme poverty was, I think, over half of the population. Now that's been cut uh, more than in half into nearly single digits. And that's because that country made extreme transitions and transformations in its society. You can say the same thing about Cuba, where more than half the population before 1959 was illiterate and couldn't read and didn't own any land, that only a handful of corporations owned all the land. And most of those corporations were U.S. corporations. 
mm-hmm. now since 1959, ev- that whole scenario has changed. And the only reason Cuba remains a relatively underdeveloped country is because of the embargo, because of sanctions. So we go on and on and on, but it's important that people, uh, especially who are involved in this movement, uh, begin to examine the reasons and the roots for why the U.S. commits these just outright dis- uh, disastrous military campaigns, these campaigns of war, and then blames uh, the destruction of these countries on the countries themselves because of their so-called human rights violations. And then when you were getting into the domestic situation here in the United States, I mean, I've done a lot of research in my you know academic life, whatever, uh, around solitary confinement, mm-hmm. and there is nothing else in the world uh, that can really equate uh, to, you know, uh, the fact that the United States is a really a world leader in exporting these kind of just torture techniques um, to the world. Like the United States, I mean, solitary confinement is a very old practice, um, but really it's it, it it ballooned in the 1980s when the U.S. became this uh, prison house of nations and. Now, almost 100,000 people languish uh, with some of the most devastating effects that I don't think people understand. I mean, Julian Assange is right now going through that in Belmarsh. But, you know, Mumia Abu-Jamal, political prisoners have experienced uh, solitary confinement for decades. But 100,000 people do. And no one talks about it. It's as if that is not even an issue at all. People commit suicide all of the time because of the effects of this. They attempt suicide all the time. Um, it really does destroy you. It's meant to break you. And I, I think that that alone means that the United States has no, I mean, even if you just control for the bombings and the, the just the, the da- almost daily murder of black people by police, you can control for all the other things, which there's such uh, the homelessness, the, the, the poverty that exists here, uh, just solitary confinement alone. Um, and the fact that it's a, a racist practice because the majority of people in solitary are uh, black people, the fact that that even exists here means no one in the uh, political and military apparatus, the officialdom here in the U.S., the ruling elite, should, shouldn't be able to talk the way they do about human rights. But hegemony means that indeed uh, they can, and that's because there is this um, sort of hubris and exceptionalism and, and arrogance and it's and it's a lot of it is race related but it's also class related too uh, that continues to make it effective. Yeah, it's um, it, it's uh, it's very um, interesting that, uh, that well let's talk about when prisons when the, the prison industrial complex really started to grow. I, a couple of years ago, I, I wrote uh, something about um, uh, uh, Martin Luther King's the, the Time Since 1968 and how black people have fared. And one of the things I learned is that when King was still alive, there was something like 600,000 people incarcerated in the entire country. And now it's 2.2 million. So the, the uh, end of the liberation movement, the end of Jim Crow, meant that a country that's been dedicated since its founding to keeping black people under physical control uh, sought something else. And they used the war on drugs, they used law and order, all, all kinds of, of tropes to, to put black people away. It was as, as if to say, if you won't stay in your place, we'll, 
find a place to put you. Um, and uh, so it's racist by its uh, very nature. We also have, as you mentioned, a society that <clears throat> doesn't provide for the needs of its uh, workers. Uh, wages have been stagnant all these decades. Uh, living wage jobs are fewer and fewer and more and more difficult to be had. So you have this, this surplus population who are, are um, the perfect victims uh, who serve so many needs of anti-black racism, of uh, uh, capitalism, uh, you name it. So many needs being uh, met in one fell swoop. And it's been devastating to the people of this country. And uh, these are things that are just not talked about. Um, it's as if, uh, it's very strange. It's like our lived experience is never, is rarely reflected in the corporate media, in political campaigns. I mean, if you mention resolving any of those issues, if you talk about raising the minimum wage, Bernie Sanders had a plan to raise it to $15 an hour in five years. I mean, something very, very meager, but he had to go because you couldn't talk about government actually doing something for people. Uh, government's only supposed to do something for rich people. So the Bush temporary tax cuts for rich people become permanent tax cuts under Obama. Uh, and then Trump you know, gives them an even bigger tax cut. So our government exists apparently just to help out rich people. And, um, and that means the, um, uh, the military industrial complex. It, that's why we have um, uh, military spending taking up 60% of our budget. Um, and uh, which is why we can't have our needs met. So all of these things are, are part of a whole of uh, the lack of human rights, the lack of democracy. We, we're always told we have a democracy. Well, they have elections, not even very good elections, by the way, um, with the uh, votes being stolen and suppressed, uh, people being denied their right to vote. So um, yeah, that's, that's pretty much the reality of um, of where we are as a country, but I think it's very important to state that, just to say it as often as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, and you know, just to reiterate too the point about how uh, the United States is in this precipitous decline, right? And I think this is a new moment for this generation, for whoever's alive right now in the United States. It's a it's a new moment, I think, because um, at no other period has, I think, for those who have been alive, who are alive right now, have has there been such instability in this system? I mean, it's it's not even just the economic crisis because that is devastating people right now. That is at, that is accelerating this trend of uh, just massive casualization, impoverishment. Uh, of the majority of people here, but then you also have this political instability that aligns with it. You have this, Donald Trump is president of the United States and uh, the entire political establishment refuses to acknowledge the exact reasons why he's elected and blame Russia, blame everybody else, blame Bernie Sanders, blame the Green Party. And then you also have of uh, just this, as you mentioned, this social alienation of all the actual problems that people are facing in this country are ignored 
even when things like Breonna Taylor, for example, the non-indictment of her killer cops, which just recently happened, uh, there are massive protests, but there's no conversation among the media, academics, uh, politicians, every the entire uh, the entire uh, makeup of this society is ignoring all of that, is ignoring why this happens all the time. And when it is addressed, it's almost addressed as if as if this is just some uh, magnificent uh, injustice that just happened. This all just began and it all just started. And it's, you know, uh, and the Democrats are trying to use it for electoral reasons, but they don't offer any solutions to this no, problem. No, they don't no. talk about community control of the police. They don't talk about, uh, you know, how black people in the United States don't have the power to uh, really change this uh, uh, you know, this situation right now the, and how movement politics are the only way that's going to happen. That's all of that is off the table. And you're what yeah. you're left with is the choice of, oh, vote, vote, vote. You see in the NBA right now, vote, 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 vote. Everyone's got to vote. That's how we're going to use our voice. Vote for oh, what? Yeah. Vote, vote for the Democrats to uh, ensure that more black people are killed by police, more black people are put in prison, more wars are waged abroad, more austerity. I mean, that's that's the choice. And I think that level of disillusionment and disenchantment, that level of alienation is just so high. And then back to the point just real quick about why the U.S. is so bellicose, so hostile towards countries that it wants to overthrow and, it, and, and towards governments it doesn't like. And I think a big part of that is that the United States cannot, under its current capitalist, imperialist system, it cannot do the things that those other countries are doing. It can't do what China is doing. It can't invest in renewable energy like China does. It can't build high-speed rails like China is doing. It can't raise wages of workers like China is doing. It can't build infrastructure. It can't uh, reach out to the global south and say, hey, we can give you 5G technology as if you give us oil. You know, they can't do that because... The United States and its ruling elite see that as a cut into the profits that it wants to make. And it sees everything. The ruling elite of this country sees everything as uh, profit first. Profit not for everybody. Not everyone's profiting. But profit just for the corporations, the banks, and the, the so-called donor class that I know so, the, the Bernie Sanders people talk a lot about. But it's really the people at the top of these institutions in Wall Street, well, in uh, the monopoly, uh, the monopolies, the military contractors. They are really setting policy in the United States and they don't want anyone to see like PBS took off the uh, documentary they had frontline about uh, the anti-poverty campaign in China. They took it down because it was too pro Xi Jinping because there was, uh, I think, a photo of Xi Jinping in one of the uh, visits that Robert Kuhn made uh, with the PBS uh, film staff. And there was a picture. And you can see that everywhere. I, I was in China. You'll see that everywhere. There are pictures of the politicians everywhere. Because people tend to like, they like their politicians. Just like when you go um, into, you know, there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of love for the government in China. Um, uh, people may not want to hear that, but there is. Wow. So you'll see that in places. And, um, you know, they, it got taken down because of that. But the real reason it was taken down was because the anti-poverty campaign is something that not many in the United States, even in the media, want you to see because it's all about uh, going out to the most remote, poorest villages in China, places that were really just hard to reach. You know, China just industrialized like 30 years ago. Like it's a really it was really it's really hard to 
bring people out of poverty when you don't have an industrial base. So uh, that's happening right now. And the ruling class doesn't want you to see it. So it gets taken down. And it's because of, you know, Xi Jinping and uh, well, it being a too pro-communist. If, right? if you limit what people see, if part of the problem many Americans have is that they literally do not know about any other possibilities and they want to keep it that way. Uh, that's They don't want to know that this government we're always told is evil is actually doing more for its people than ours is. 5,000 dead from COVID in China, 200,000 in the U.S. So, I mean, that is that tells you about their system. It's a system built uh, to meet public needs. And this lie we're always told about being the best, the greatest, the richest, exceptional, blah, blah, blah. And they cannot meet the most basic needs. I also think sometimes they just want to punish countries who want to be different. They just want to punish Cuba. I mean, mm -hmm. 60 years later, anybody who had property there, or corporations who had property there, it's 60 years ago. They're probably all dead by now. I don't even think that's the point. The point is just to punish them for daring to right. be different, for daring to say we're going to have a different system. Um, and so, and China is a direct competitor with right. the U.S. And the U.S. gave China this power by deindustrializing um, and then created, I'm, I'm going to say monster, not because I think China's a monster, just to use the expression. So then they created this monster. Now they're like, oh my God, uh, China is uh, China's economy will soon overtake um, uh, uh, our economy. Uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, mm. which um, is really not just in the Eurasian landmass, it's all over the world. Oh, and yeah. um, the fact that this country exists that can't be controlled by the United States has chosen to be uh, a competitor, has chosen to prove that um, uh, it can do what the United States refuses to do, namely help its people, it has to be declared an enemy. And I think there are some who actually want a hot war, um, which is Definitely. just insane. That uh, so yeah the the U.S. has more nukes than China has, but who is to say that means the U.S. would win a war? There are also efforts to um, instigate war with Russia. Um, right. There yeah. are U.S. troops now that you know they left Germany, but they sent them to Poland. Um, uh, so they're bordering close to um, to Russia. Russia and U.S. troops are bumping up against each other in Syria. It's yep. very very dangerous. So, yeah. and Russia's capitalist, by the way. So yeah. you can't even say that's the issue with Russia, but they want Russia's resources. Um, they want to control that part of the world. Russia borders China. So um, it's um, this big power conflict, and it's mm -hmm. all caused by the United States and its puppet state allies. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And you know, what's always so interesting, because a lot of people, because, I mean, let's face it, anti-China sentiment in the United States is at an all-time high. Yes. And arguably, anti-Russian sentiment is oh. at an all-time high. And to be honest, it's and it's not just all Donald Trump. Uh, we know that the entire political establishment has done nothing to challenge this. 
So, oh. of course, it's going to fester. And the corporate media, the biggest criminals in this, because they're the ones who cite the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. They're the ones who are peddling Adrian Zenz. They're the ones who are constantly, every every day, talking Russiagate nonsense all the time. So uh, it's it's really their fault at the end of the day. Donald Trump could be marginalized if if it was something that was preferential to the ruling elite. Not It wouldn't be too hard. It would just be, uh, you know, there would actually be an internecine ruling class conflict. Uh, but what we really do see is a big consensus on this question and great power competition is the military strategy. And I think it's pretty clear who wants the hot wars. It's it's the military. I think it's the military contractors at, at, at the head, right? They're the ones who have their tentacles in all of these think tanks, right? Uh, they're the ones who are pretty much supplying the the Pentagon, the intelligence apparatus with the sort of uh, motivation to talk about these things like this. And then it's those officials who are kind of in control of the media. And they're the ones who are peddling the information to the media. And the media says, OK, we'll take all of these unnamed officials um, at heart and we're not going to challenge it because guess what? Uh, that means more money uh, and more um, more access to us. So, you know. So there's that aspect to it. And then, um, you know, just in terms of uh, the other things you were saying, I, I just I really do think that for the for those who have all this anti-China sentiment, you know, just so deeply in their hearts. And I think there are a lot of people even on our side of the political aisle that harbor these mm -hmm. um, or at least uh, people who claim to be on our side of the political aisle on the left. Uh, it's just really important to to study history because one of the things that's not talked about is okay, yeah, China in, in the United States normalized in the early 1970s, but right. it was always known by the U.S. ruling class, especially that China was not going to allow itself to become a political uh, a political satellite for U.S. power. That China was always going to deal with the United States on the basis of equality mutuality, that if if the United States was uh, going to, um, you know, do work business with China, that it was going to have to benefit China. And that, you know, the United States, you know, do do what you will. China can't really control what the United States does. But at the end of the day, unlike other arrangements that we've seen, especially since the end of the Cold War or towards the end of the Cold War, this, uh, you know, the... Um, IMF, World Bank arrangements, all that we see all over the global south, uh, the, the indebtedness that we see, the underdevelopment, the poverty because of the U.S.-led financial institutions in Africa, Latin America, for example. Uh, China was like, no, we're going to, if you're going to, uh, you know, invest here and you want to take advantage of our wages, which are historically low because, you know, we were only a semi-feudal country yesterday, uh, if you're going to take advantage of that, then we want your technology. We want your expertise. And the United States wasn't the only player in this. The normalization between the U.S. and China was huge because the U.S. is the big hegemon and China is a, was a big socialist country at the time and still is. And now, uh, but no, not many people have realized that, you know, the Nordic countries were big in this. Uh, so was Japan, right? Mm -hmm. There was a lot of opening up and reform in China was not just about the U.S. I mean, the US, this is how U.S.-centric people can be. It's not just... <laughs> I it know. Is, like, like it's, it's about China 
cooper finding ways to cooperate with other countries uh, through foreign investment um, in a way that would benefit China. And now that China is reaping the benefits of decades and decades of um, this process, the United States doesn't like it. And the United States doesn't like it because China no longer uh, no longer can be bullied. And I think that's what's frustrating right now to the ruling well, class. And then the same thing with Russia, because Russia, even though Russia was such a decimated country after the fall of the Soviet Union, just a decade later, um, there started to be this shift. And it's not just Putin. It's not just, you know, uh, a resurgent nationalism and independent sentiment, all that, uh, you know, romanticism about the Soviet Union. That played a, that plays a role, of course. But there is this shift worldwide because of China, because of Russia, because of Iran. All these countries are, are saying, well, we're, we're, we're strong enough to do this on our own now. We, wanna, we, we don't want to be dependent on the United States. And look at what the United States does around the world. It destroys oh, Libya. It destroys Syria. It destroys, every, it destroys everything. <laughs> I, cooperation is not what the... Cooperation to the U.S. means do what we say. That's all it means. So uh, in post-Soviet era, when Yeltsin uh, gave the U.S. free reign, gave oligarchs free reign, Russia was fine then. They loved Russia was okay. Um, but when uh, they stabilized themselves and said, no, you're not going to tell us what to do, now Russia is an enemy. So Iran is an enemy. And you see them acting together, uh, sending oil to Venezuela to circumvent U.S. sanctions. Um, all of these things, it's, and that's a good thing. Uh, for other countries to be independent, independent and to act on their independence in defiance of the United States. But um, you, you just mentioned people who are, you know, in general leftists buying into uh, this narrative. The, the corporate media here, our education system, everything keeps the rest of the world out. And people who are otherwise well-educated, well-informed, read the newspaper. If you read the New York Times and Washington Post and watch MSNBC and listen to NPR, you don't know anything that you need to know about the rest of the world. Absolutely nothing. Um, so people who want to be on the right side, they don't want to uh, be connected with a brutal regime. So that's why they call them a brutal regime. Yeah. And uh, so we are marginalized, those of us in independent media, but that's why it's so important for people to read Black, Black Agenda Report and support us uh, in, our, uh, in our work. And that is why uh, even those of us who are relatively small uh, are seen as being so dangerous. There was a, um, someone had a webinar a few days ago, or tried to have a webinar, with Leila Khaled um, mm -hmm. on Palestine. And uh, so people protested at Zoom, so Zoom took it off. Then they tried to put it on YouTube, YouTube took it off. And I don't know how many people were really gonna watch this webinar, but the censorship that we see of our point of view shows how important it, it is for us to do what we do and how fragile the system is. Mm -hmm. um, even though they go and they go through all of this effort to make sure that nothing that we've talked about is heard by as many people uh, as should know it. Yes, yes. Well, we'll close, you know, with these last remarks, and, and I'll just say briefly that uh, 
I think one of the reasons why we are so suppressed, why Google, YouTube, we saw Press TV also had their YouTube channel deleted. Well, this happens so often. And, uh, you know, I share things all the time that you can just tell that the algorithms are doing their work. They yep. don't want certain people that you tag, certain certain sources that you share to to uh, have any weight. This happened all the time with, uh, you know, rest in power to him, Andre Vilcek. A lot of his work all the time on these um, accounts would be suppressed because he was going to the DPRK. He was in Indonesia. He was in Democratic Republic of Congo. He was going everywhere, Turkey, where he unfortunately died. And of course, there's probably foul play in that, given that he was one of the first to report about the um, uh, the the arming, the training, the funding that Turkey was giving to the so-called rebel groups along the Turkish-Syrian border. He was there. I mean, I remember reading his article so so clearly i read his article on his trip there where he was documenting this happening and so the ruling class isn't stupid it understands that the bernie sanders campaign movement right the people who are part of that movement are smart people you know there are a lot of smart people in there and there's a lot of grassroots people in that uh, campaign as well uh, you know there's a lot of younger people in that movement the black lives matter uh, insurgency the uprising same deal so if you're going to keep, especially these uh, highly populated uh, movements kind of in check, one of the best ways to do that is to ensure that their process of, politi of, of radicalization, of uh, political development is arrested by just an inability to understand or have access to any information that will help you understand what's happening around the world. And also what are some, even if they're small, what are some of the most militant sections of this movement saying about things? That's that's how you control, socially control, politically control the development of movements. Glenn Ford talked about in his recent article, there's been hundreds of millions of dollars thrown at anything with the Black Lives Matter moniker with that label. And that's because there is this deep need to try to control the development of this process. And one of the most effective ways is by making sure that Margaret Kimberly, Danny Haifong, Glenn Ford, Black Agenda Report, Black Alliance for Peace, all of the organizations, uh, our work, all, so many members of the No Cold War campaign, Chow Collective, and uh, um, you know Carlos Martinez, you know, have, have experienced this, uh, this marginalization, this, um, this assault by not just the most right-wing elements, but really by just these so-called uh, Silicon Valley companies, the media apparatus, they don't just ignore you. They're actively working within their institutions to make sure that content that's deemed too Russia-friendly or China-friendly or too uh, black identity extremist, right? There's so many different operations and policies that make this happen. So it's important that we call them all out. <laughs> We can thank the Democrats for that. That's what Russiagate was used for. So uh, if you go on Twitter or Facebook, we mentioned CGTN, it says Chinese affiliated. On YouTube, it will say controlled yes. by the Chinese government. But for the BBC, it says it gets some public money. Well, mm -hmm. what is the difference? But this is, um, uh, we can thank them for uh, using the Russiagate fraud to um, uh, to further marginalize us, to censor. It's the left that's censored. And every time, they'll always use some nutty right-winger like Alex Jones or something as their example. But he's not really the target. We're the target. And people like us are uh, are the ones targeted by that. 
Yes, indeed. Well, talk about human rights violations. That's been our episode for today. The United States is the biggest human rights offender in the world. Uh, make sure to uh, you know spread this video, spread our channel. Uh, make sure that these kind of conversations happen in the independent media. Uh, mm -hmm. Subscribe to our channel, and we'll see you again in a month. And uh, uh, thanks, Margaret, for being with me today. Thank you. It's great to be back. Bye-bye.